This is the Seafair Investor Podcast, bringing you the tides on investing and personal finance from two millennial seafarers and alike. I am your host, Soshin, a full-time seafarer, a value investor, and a personal finance enthusiast. Welcome to episode 26. In today's episode, I am excited to share my conversation with no other than Braden Dennis of the Canadian Investor Podcast. His podcast, which is based in Canada, as the name suggests, <laughs> has been listened for over 2 million times already. And together with his co-host, Simon Bellinger, has helped a lot of people who are starting to go into investing, like with me more than a year ago. I am an avid fan of his podcast and it shows in our conversation. (laughs) His podcast has also been an inspiration for me to start my own with the goal to help my fellow millennial seafarers towards financial freedom which myself is still in the journey. Brayden is also the founder and CEO of a startup named Stratosphere Investing, which is an online platform to research on stocks in the US and Canada. Our conversation revolves not only about what the title says on the six green flags of a great business, but it's also about how he started his own investing journey, the biases of investing, and how he handles his own personal finances. Braden has been really generous in our conversation, and I believe anyone listening will learn a thing or two. Now, without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Braden Dennis of the Canadian Investor Podcast. Braden Dennis, welcome to the Seafer Investor Podcast. I really appreciate you being on the show. Soshin, thank you for having me. I have to give you some props. I have to give you a shout out because you have been very persistent and I appreciate <laughs> that because it's hard to find time, especially with the different time zones, right? Like it, it's not it's not just mm-hmm. easy for us to just pick it up and do it. And uh, you have been very persistent and I commend you because when you're just starting out your podcast, that is what is required. So uh, keep keep doing that. Yes, persistence is the key <laughs> and also consistency. Yes. And also just don't mention what I said in the last part <laughs> of the email, Your actually. Sh- My girlfriend find, found found out and <laughs> just laughing. Your so. secret's safe <laughs> with me, buddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I also just want to uh, share that this is like another of those moments, you know, you know, where it still feels surreal talking now to the very person I'm just listening in my phone like an hour ago <laughs> in, in the podcast. And I just want to thank you for for your work you did with with your podcast with Simon. It really helped me a lot when I was just starting to find my way in investing more than a year ago. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, not a problem. I mean, the podcast has helped a lot of people along the way, and we've been doing it for a long time now. And uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that we get uh, we get messages like that all the time, and every single one of them makes us feel really good. So appreciate you saying that. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Though, so I I just want to start, you know, the conversation with 
an odd question. <laughs> so, so I, I I'm like copying what you know Tim Ferriss is doing with his guests. So it's it's nice to have the ball rolling on some kind of topics that it's kind of a surprise. So, what's the weirdest experience you've been through lately? I mean, may it be in investing or anything that comes to your mind first when I ask the question. That's a hard one. I mean, I think like the weirdest thing lately for me is I've just been getting noticed in the public more and more. And I think that because we changed the podcast, uh, our work to actually show our faces and stuff now, like you, you can kind of like mm-hmm. know what I look like. Um, <laughs> like just last last weekend, there was like three people and I was in Montreal that like, just sniped me off the street being like, Hey, are you that guy that I listen to all the time? <laughs> you know? And it's like, yeah, like <laughs> I, I am. And it's just kind of, it's just an interesting interaction um, because one person feels like they know you really well and you don't know them. Um, and so, I mean, I'm like, it, I am no big shot whatsoever at all, but that's, it. it is kind of weird. Um, having those experiences for the first time, I want to say over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, that's uh, also like a humbling experience also and really pushes you, pushes you to work harder on what you're doing. So yeah, it's really nice. So I, I've been listening to your podcast for more than a year now and I've only caught you know snippets on how you started investing, really. I mean, you told the other podcasting uh, shows and I know that you started at a young age, but how did you really start? I mean, when was the moment you knew investing is for you? And we can start there as an introduction for the, for the podcast. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. So I had been reading some books that had been given to me. Um, one of them was given to me by a colleague on my first job. I already knew that I wanted to invest in some capacity, whether I do what my parents did and and buy real estate properties or, um, or invest in stocks. Cause I was already familiar with, with that process. Cause I had already read many books about investing by then. And, uh, when I was able to, when I was 18 and I was able to open the tax sheltered account on my own, I did so. And, um, Luckily, I, I did enough research and figured out enough that I should just own the index. And so what I did was I just owned the index broad base, um, you know, S&P 500 type index investing for three-ish, four-ish years uh, during when I started through to my early, early 20s. And this was the best thing I could possibly do because... I avoided silly mistakes uh, that most people make. And I avoided uh, how most 21-year-olds treat the stock market like a casino. So I avoided both of those things, which I think are a sure way to lose a lot of money and, and, not, and not begin your compounding. Because that is your ultimate advantage when you, when you, do, when you are lucky enough like me to start that early. Um, I know it's somewhat unique. And you have to appreciate the mathematical advantage of compounding you have when you start early. And so 
if you kind of piss that all away, doing stupid stuff, treating the stock market like a casino for the first, you know, several years of when you should be really starting that compounding machine, that beginning that snowball, that can really destroy all your returns, right? So um, I, I was lucky enough to go full indexing and just give myself some time to learn. Um, today, I don't own any indices. I'm very concentrated in high quality companies. But um, I think a good amount of people should just go that route. I know Warren Buffett talks about that, right? Like most people should just be owning the index and then go to sleep. You know, like don't spend another single second worrying about it because human behavior and money typically don't go well together for whatever reason. Um, you said you started in with index i mean that's really a good way to have an exposure to the stock market but what what made you took the take the step into active investing i mean you you've just said that that uh, that's what warren buffett has, has been advising for most people just to go passive investing so what made you go into active investing there the past decade yeah, when I think of active investing, I think of people kind of going in and out of stuff. They have portfolio turnover, you know, the average position may be like, you know, six to 12 months, you know, it's not trading, but it's, you know, active, mm -hmm. running like an active long short equity strategy. I do very little activity. Um, I am lethargic in the way I buy securities. I contribute like through a dollar cost averaging system, which I encourage most people to do. And you got to rip those shares out of my hands for the most part for me to initiate a sell. Like I've, I've been investing for a while now and I've initiated like 10 sells total. Uh, and that includes like trimming a position, right? So like that is not a lot considering I've done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of buy trades. Um, just adding to more, adding more and more to each position. So active investing is kind of like a weird term for me in, in the way that I think about my strategy, but you're right. I do. I don't today just sit on my hands and own the broad market index ETFs. Like, like I said, most people should do that. Now, the reason for that is I'm not buying uh, moonshots. I'm not buying lottery tickets. I'm not treating the stock market like a casino. I am buying great businesses, holding them for a long term, monitoring them, not overreacting every quarter if they have a bad quarter, not valuing them on their stock price, but valuing on them on their business fundamentals and a select few, two, three key performance indicators of the business that I think are worth tracking. If those metrics are out of whack or do not track the way that I thought they would, then I'll, I'll consider moving on. But other than that, I mean, you buy right, you buy good businesses, and you just don't really have to do that much. Like investing for both amateurs and professionals and people that do this for a living, both see better returns with less activity. It is the most rare profession that the less you do in terms of activity, not to be confused with less thinking. You need to always be thinking. 
but the less activity you actually perform in terms of being in and out of stuff, high portfolio turnover, the more you can limit that, the better your returns are, which is highly, highly counterintuitive to the way most people think about mm-hmm. success in most professional industries. And so um, it's not intuitive. It's not what you'd think. And uh, it, it takes a bit to understand some of that reality. And, and I think having you know some experience definitely helps. But if you don't have any experience, that's why you go buy index ETFs and you don't worry about it, right? Like, yes. Um, so, so my solution <laughs> to that like interesting problem is just to go to what you're saying with what Warren Buffett recommends. You know, he's like, I'm putting my entire net worth in the S and P 500. Uh, no one's going to manage it after I die. And so, um, he, but, but does he own the index? No, he doesn't. He owns individual securities. No. So I I think I'm kind of aligned on him there. It's like, well, I'm going to manage my money, but (laughs) most people shouldn't. I I just want to um, mention what, I don't know if you know Nick Majuli, but he has an interesting case about active investing. I mean, how do you approach this dilemma that he said that in in investing, you know, in stocks, it's, it's a game that we don't know if we are good. It's not like basketball where you see a basketball player and he dribbles really good and shoots really good. You know at first glance that he is a good player. But with it in in investing, it's it's not it's not at first glance. Yet like we even know that even 15 years of good returns is not a guarantee that you're going to do better again and again in the future. So how do you approach this kind of dilemma in choosing businesses and choosing stocks or in engaging your um, proficiency in in this active investing? I think it's a great question because it is one that's difficult to navigate, right? It's like like your analogy, you know, if, some, if, if someone's good at basketball, they're, they're just good at basketball. You know, they have the, they have the mm-hmm. stamina, the speed, the strength, the height. Um, the athletic ability, the, the 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 eyes to know where the, their teammates are, and and it comes out in their stats. Like the feedback, t- the feedback loop time is very short on sports, for instance. The feedback mm-hmm. loop time for investors is painfully slow and almost non-existent. So it is a it is an interesting dilemma. However. The way I think about it is if you are performing at a high level in terms of your actual investment returns over a time period, five plus, 10 plus, I think after 10 plus, I think you have some real actual uh, you know, data to back it, back it up that you know what, oh. you're, that you know what you're doing. Uh, like, you know, and, and sometimes that performance may come from just one investment or two investments. This is very, very common. Um, And in your portfolio, some names will start to concentrate themselves very heavily if they keep winning. I own a position that is about 44% of my portfolio today. I haven't added to it in quite a while, Um, but its performance just speaks for itself. And I don't sell winners. Um, I don't, I don't like to sell winners unless I think the value, unless it's like gone, become like some meme stock. And I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, 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 I'll take this and run. Um, but 
for the most part, like your feedback loop is terrible. And so I think that it's a good question. The problem that people have is they get very cocky if they make a few good moves in a bull market. 2022 rolls around and they get wiped out. And so this happens all the time. This is the normal cadence of market cycles and the behavior of people engaging in the in, in financial markets happens all the time. It's happened, you know, in the last six months. It's going to happen again. At the end of the day, I mean, you just have to focus on what you can control. It's not a game of really measuring yourself up against a benchmark of other people. I think that it is worthy to mention to measure yourself against the benchmark of the index because if you can't reliably beat the index, then you should just be in the index. Um, but in terms of like making sure you are a best among your peers will probably lead to underperformance because you will start acting in the short term. Your motives will move from long term to short term to meet short term performance objectives. And this is the problem that professional money managers face today. And they've always faced is they have their clients and mandates that are basically every quarter, every month of, of performance objectives. Those make no sense for long-term investors. They make very little to zero sense for long-term investors. And so you have a like, I think these are good questions. You have a, co a collection of poor feedback loops, poor objectives, and um, bad incentives, I would say as well. So I think if you can kind of block a lot of that stuff out, focus on what you can control, own good businesses, if not great businesses, and just do nothing, man. Just chill out. Like <laughs> you don't have to be in and out of stuff all the time. <laughs> one one super investor that I uh, remembered immediately when you said like do nothing is with Guy Spear. Like for several thirteen Fs now, he has done. Yes. Nothing. <laughs> no buys, no sale. It's just the same quarter per quarter. So yeah, it's it's one of those people that Chuck Ackery is another 13F you should follow as well. He's 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 owned yeah. like American I, Tower for like you know, a couple decades. Wow, yeah, that um, one. He's owned Constellation Software for a couple decades. Um Constellation Software also. Yeah, you wow. won't see it on their 13F though, because it's a uh, Toronto Stock Exchange listing. It's in Canada. Yeah, yeah. so it only thirteen yeah. Fs are for only for U.S. listings. But there are a long collection mm -hmm. of businesses he has made over a hundred times his money, and just does nothing. You know, just lets them ride. Like as long as the business is still good <laughs> and, the, and the thesis is still intact, why sell it? So, in relation to that, it's it's actually a good transition to my next question to ask about. What key metrics or you know qualities do you like in a business? Or to put it a more relatable term, what green flags do you want to <laughs> see if you own a stock of a company? <laughs> yeah, sure. I have six that I typically use. Green flags, I like that. Because um, I have some <laughs> red flags for sure. The green flags for me are reliable and consistent compounding of their their top line sales and their free cash flow and um, i mean investors love to complicate things at the end of the day i i'm an entrepreneur <laughs> i run my own business the most important metric in, in in me continuing to grow 
is more sales. I need more sales than I made last quarter and the year before, or else my business isn't growing. And uh, people like to get all fancy with all kinds of gap, non-gap financial metrics when at the end of the day, sales runs the day. Um, now, I need a recognizable durability of the business. Like if that's not obvious for me, then I just move on. And I have a couple of businesses that I just, I love them. I look at them, but I'm like, it's not obviously durable to me. I look at a perfect example of one that we talk about on my podcast all the time is like clothing businesses. You have something like Lululemon mm. with unbelievable margins. Their customers are obsessed. They can charge whatever they want and people line up out the door. The product's good. I like the product. I understand the business. So like that's also very helpful for as, as an investor. And then I look at it and I'm like, is clothing obviously durable historically any brand ever? And the answer is no. Um, the short answer is no anyways. And the whole time, you know, I've lost tons of money on, I could own Lululemon stock this whole time. Um, and maybe it will be intact for a really long time. Who knows? But that's not obvious enough for me to describe their moat. I think that the durability of these types of businesses is lacking. So I need to be able to quickly explain it to a three-year-old why I think it's durable. Um, it needs to be like somewhat underpinned by, well, not needs to be, but it's definitely, we'll call it a green flag, underpinned by secular growth trends. <laughs> like there is a growing total addressable market driving them. Like not only are they taking more market share that the piece of the pie that's available, but the, the pie is actually growing itself. And so if, if a business is underpinned by those secular growth trends, it really can just help you and help the business correct mistakes they may make if that pie is growing. Uh, the most important probably of all of them, which is just a hard, hard, fast stop. I talk about it all the time. You know, you, you, so should you probably get a penny every time I talk about pricing power and you, you'd have lots of money. Yes. <laughs> you have tons of cash. This is just one I won't budge on. Um, I, I don't buy stocks that have a commoditized product or service. And there's just, there's just no durability. There's just no way for them to defend themselves in an inflationary environment. And there's no way for the management team to flex pricing power and grow earnings all the time, right? Like consistently year over year compound. A lot of that comes from pricing power. The perfect example is, you know, the oil and gas companies, their product goes out the door and is dictated by the market. Apple decides what the iPhone costs every year. That is a distinct competitive business advantage versus a commoditized service or product. And no one's holding the gun to my head saying I have to own these commodity names, even when they've been ripping. I'm like, you know what? On a historical basis, businesses with pricing power have outlapped them. And I don't care about short-term performance. I care about the long-term performance. Uh, they need to demonstrate consistent high returns on invested capital. And there's a couple of ways to go about that. And maybe we can go into ROIC, but the easiest way to explain it is, you know, a, a business puts in a dollar into the business and what what is the output? What is the out what is that what does it turn into a dollar twenty? Does it turn into a dollar forty? You know, 40% return on invested capital. Um, 
there are businesses that just over time through their business model, through what the management team does, through them executing well and growing their business is they turn a dollar into a dollar twenty. They turn a dollar into a dollar consistently, right? Like that's over a long period of time, investors, valuation aside, will get proportionately, you know, in a vacuum, as Charlie Munger always says, over a long period of time with those assumptions, investors will get the return of their average return on investing capital of the business. And it just makes a lot of sense, right? Like theoretically. Number six is just management aligned with long-term performance and execution. The management team, it, it's, you don't have to read four books about them. You don't have to, you know, watch, uh, you know, every single interview of them on the internet. Sometimes that might just not even exist. Uh, but yeah, Mark yeah, yeah, exactly. There's two photos of him on the internet. But what you can do <laughs> is listen to their conference calls. And it's very easy to do. It's publicly available. You can, you can get all of them and hear them talk about their business. You're like, you're like, you're at the boardroom table listening to their call. And that's a wonderful resource to be able to do that. And so just hearing them talk about their business, how to hear them talk about short term versus long term visions, it, it makes a big difference. I mean, if, if you were to invent, if, if you were to invest in my company, Sushin, you wouldn't give me capital without like me explaining what I want to do with the business. Is that not fair to say? Of course, you would. You would need to explain. Yes, it to yes. Me. Like, I would yeah, need to explain to you. And you explain the vision. You need to. You know, we'd have like a sit down one on one like this. Very typical for rise, raising money in a private market. You have like meetings. In the stock market, people just you know. Sure, you know, take my money, you know, and you've never heard the the management talk about the business. That doesn't make a lot of sense to my brain. And so, just you know, listen to a call or two, give yourself a gut check that they know what they're doing is a uh, is a really mm -hmm. easy thing to do. It might take you half an hour, and then uh, maybe you're able to, you know, ride out your conviction from there. Yeah, can we go through again those six green flags that you know you said first? First is this, you know. Sure. Uh, in, um, increasing increasing revenues or top line sales and free cash flow yeah free cash flow second green flag you said is this um, durable increasing ROIs uh, uh, durability yes, yes. <laughs> yeah and then the third one is uh, increasing ROIC and then the fourth one is secular uh, trends underpinning the business. secular trends yes and the fifth one is this um, the most well, the one I talk about the most Pricing power. Yeah. <laughs> Pricing power, yes. I, I need to put another penny. <laughs> yeah. And then the sixth one, which is management. Yeah, I, I want to kind of um, talk a bit about, you know, management quality as, as for me, I think it's, it's the one of the most hardest to quantify or totally. to look for. So how do you go out into checking if, you know, the management is actually good because of course they they can all say the flowery words on conference call yes. and you know, not follow it so yes how do you go about that yeah good question um maybe maybe you need to go back a few conference calls and talk and hear about what their objectives there are and then see if they complete them i think that that's a good way to do it 
all of a sudden, are they changing the measuring stick for success? That's a bit of a red flag, right? Like they're like, okay, we value our success on our ability to grow free cash flow per share. And then all of a sudden, you know, the next conference call, they're valuing their business on their ability to, um, you know, something completely unrelated. <laughs> How many podcast appearances can I go on this quarter? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like the, the, the yardstick <laughs> changes completely. The KPIs change. That's concerning. Now, most investor relations pages, you'll be able to see historical investor presentations and investor decks as well. And they go, okay, our goals for five years out are this. Go five years, you know, press back on your browser, zoom in now another five years and see like, did that come true? You know, like did, did, did what they say they're going to do come true? And it's also like really easy for some businesses. Like look at Brookfield Asset Management. Okay. Bruce Flats, he's been with the company since 1990. They reported earnings today, record inflows. Everything looks great. I mean, the business is just turning into this behemoth of uh, global assets around the world. Bruce Flat joined the business in 1990. He became the CEO in 2002. Since then, he has compounded this business into an absolute behemoth. Today, he's 56 years old. So I, I don't, he, he looks, he strikes me as a guy that's going to, you know, work at least another 10 years. And he's just like, he just has a vision for excellence and the, the results are there. Like, he just doesn't need a lot of criticism from me and, and really for me to dig much further than look at the results this man has produced. And he's a big part of it because he is the one actually going out and buying some of these distressed assets, uh, buying some of these infrastructure assets, going against the grain. When everyone told you that office and real estate was dead during COVID, he just took the entire real estate business private. He just stole it from the public markets. Like <laughs> These are the types of people that you want working for you, for your, working for your money. I have a friend that's an anonymous uh, online on Twitter and his account is called Sidecar Capital. And he's a great dude for one. But second, he invests in a way called Sidecar Capital, which means he partners with the best business leaders who run public companies today. So whether it be the Mark Leonard's of the world, the Warren Buffett's of the world, the Chuck Ackery of the world, you know, the guy, the, these people who have long track records of success and he's just along for the ride in the sidecar. You know what I mean? And they have a, yeah, that's why I sidecar. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he has, uh, those people have a demonstrated ability to just be cut from a different cloth. They look at the world differently. They're very high Q. Their oven just burns hotter than most people. Like not everyone's the same. Like, like your basketball analogy, mm -hmm. you know, like LeBron James is better at basketball than like everyone else in the world, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. some people are just really good at this stuff. And so you got to focus on that when you're looking at the management team, don't be afraid to partner with the, with the greatest of all time. Like you, you don't like, why wouldn't you? Right? <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's really great. The answer actually. And I want also to talk, I mean, because you mentioned the green flags already and uh, 
you never talk or you I'm I'm not sure if you mentioned in one of your podcast episodes, but you 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 don't talk often about valuation. True. Yeah, that's true. I mean yeah. So so would you buy a wonder a wonderful business in an expensive price or what what how do you approach your valuation? I mean, yes, uh the business, you know, passed all in flying colors, the six green flags. But uh, how about the valuation, the price that you're paying for the company? The reason, I'll answer this in two parts. The reason, of course, valuation is a very important part of every single process. Uh, it's, it's a very important decision for if you can acquire more of that security right now. Um, and so those things obviously matter. Price matters. The reason that we don't talk about it as much on the podcast versus like the qualitative stuff uh, of, of these businesses, the growth rates, like all that stuff. The reason for that is it's just a point in time, right? Like if, if we recorded the episode mm. and talked about its valuation in November of last year, less than one year ago, and into the bear market in June of 2022, just, just a few months later, really, the conversation is entirely different. You know, you go from Google trading at 27 times EV to EBITDA to less than 19 during that time frame <laughs> for obviously one of the greatest enterprises in the world today um, is, is Alphabet and, and Google and Google search is just an incredible business. It just gushes cash. And so the reason that that's, that's mostly for the reason for the podcast is just it's not evergreen content, really. Um, it can change so quickly. Uh, number two on like valuation, the way I actually look at it is I have a very long time horizon and I am doing my best in the words of Terry Smith to buy great businesses, don't overpay and do nothing. Those are the three things he has on every shareholder letter for his investors. Buy great businesses, yeah. don't overpay, do nothing. And so it's a really powerful construct because instead of trying to buy businesses at really cheap valuations, which which I'm akin to doing, like don't don't get me wrong, if I could buy a company for what I think way less than what it's worth, uh, then I will. There's two problems with that. Sometimes the market is just right and I'm wrong. That happens all the time. In fact, trying to think that you are smarter than the market is typically not a great way to go. Now, an advantage you may have over the market is your time horizon. I have that advantage. You have that advantage. Your time horizon is a distinct advantage you can have over the market. The market is always looking, yeah, what I'll call medium term. They're not stupid short-term traders other than like the high frequency stuff, but they're also not investing for decade plus if you were to like look at the market as a whole. And so that is your distinct advantage when it comes to valuation is what can this business become if I'm buying it here today? Because I'm trying to buy businesses that are a lot bigger in 10 years than they are today. Now, the don't overpay piece is incredibly important. And I overpaid for a couple businesses last year. I have now paid for it. I 
could not in the world get myself to buy Shopify at whatever, like 55 times sales. Like it just made no sense. Like I don't care how great a business it is. I don't care if Toby's one of the best business leaders of our time. I don't care if they dominate market share on e-commerce. My don't overpay part completely falls apart at 55 times sales. doesn't matter how good the business is. It just yeah. really doesn't. <laughs> um, even if it works out, you are relying on extremely good execution. And I think that the odds are probably stacked against you. Then it fell to about 22-ish times sales. And I was like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna start double-costing your average position. That has not worked out. I still overpaid. I still massively overpaid because historically, <laughs> those multiples are very high. That is a very high sales multiple historically uh, for any security ever, right? Like these software names that were trading at like 40 plus times sales, that is not common. It, you, know, you know when it was common? In the early 2000s before the, the tech bubble crashed, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's when it was common. <laughs> and so e even someone like me can obviously make mistakes. I think I got that valuation wrong. Yeah, I, I kind of, I was surprised when you, you when you mentioned it in a podcast last year. I, I remember Simon, you know, celebrating like finally, because you've been harping yeah. on Shopify every episode. <laughs> yeah. And then you finally bought and I was like, yeah, but it trades like on this sales multiples or yeah maybe it's correct yeah <laughs> it was like that then yeah. no no you're you're right and uh you know you don't really make net income so you're like okay we can you can say okay you can buy it on gro gross profit multiple and somewhat justify it given the growth rates and hey you know what it's again i'm holding the, i'm holding the stock today i'm not in and out of stuff so i'm gonna i'm gonna be holding it for a long time because mm -hmm. i believe in their vision but um, if I'm wrong, I'm willing to, to, to be wrong on my investment thesis. And so don't overpay is a very powerful idea. And it really gives you a, a powerful gut check. Evaluation is the hardest part of the investment business. Anyone that tells you it's not, I, I'm very curious as to why they think that. Because it is an art and a science. It is very hard to get right. Now, doing your best to not overpay is also very helpful. But then looking at like, you know, a gut check on multiples, you know, is, is buying something that's hardly growing? Like, I'll give you an example, a business I love today. I love Costco, the business. I love their ability to grow. Yeah. Can I buy it? At, I was waiting for it can to I mention. Can I buy it at 40, <laughs> what is it, like 42 times, times earnings today? Yeah, like... For a company that grows, like, you know, probably historically earnings at like, you know, eight, nine percent, maybe a little higher, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. low double digits. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just a really expensive multiple to pay for a company like that. Um, now, maybe over a long time horizon, they keep growing at that rate and then you make your money back. Long time horizons kind of can, long time horizons and great businesses can correct mistakes that you make in valuation. So that's why I focus on it more than valuation but of course it is you know the price you pay of always matters and uh you just so it's another i mean i mean saying this again and again but it's an, another good transition because you mentioned shopify is your kind of not really mistake but you kind of overpaid but i want to ask now as 
I haven't heard it in your podcast. Can you share a time an investment you made failed? You know, it failed miserably. And I just want to ask, how did you handle it? I mean, how did you overcome that failure? Yeah, good question. Well, I, I'll, I'll give you a good example. So yes, I've, I've overpaid for that stock is a pretty example of how I've lost money. But um, my track record is quite good. Um, I've been beating the market by a wide margin since I've been owning individual securities on a five plus time, five plus year time horizon. So I think that I've, I've been, I've done quite well. Now, in terms of mistakes, like I said, I was just owning the index for quite a while there before I, you know, while I kept learning. So that helped me avoid a lot of mistakes. Luckily, I was uh, smart enough at that age to do that. But today, I think my worst investment mistake is not fully understanding the dynamics of a business that I purchased named Tencent. Now, Tencent trades at about 40 USD today. I spent, I, you know, I bought the stock for a lot more than that in mid, mid 2020, you know, maybe at like 70 bucks, 75 bucks is my cost basis USD on, uh, on Tencent. And my inability to understand the business dynamics and how China works was a big mistake. I didn't understand the dynamics between the government and public traded, publicly traded companies, especially one of their size. You know, you saw what happened with Alibaba and Jack Ma, and now what has happened with Tencent. Their ability to act unilaterally completely against what shareholders would want um, is was a mistake on my part for sure. Um, and I think that moving forward, I have to be able to understand not only the business, but the environment that they do commerce in, uh, you know, and they do commerce around the world with their investment portfolio, but Mm-hmm. Who really pulls the who who can really call the shots and pull the strings over there was a misstep from me not recognizing that, and so I think I've learned quite a bit from that experience. I mean, it's not like a it's not like I lost a lot of money. It's a small position, uh, and it's gone from seventy <laughs> to forty. So it's not like you know I've zeroed out on some cannabis stock like many people have. Um, so I've been overall lucky that haven't made super bad mistakes. And the ones that I have have been small and like good learning opportunities like this 10 cent one, like my willingness to own any Chinese securities is just almost zero now until something massively changes or, or I massively understand the dynamic there, which I don't, I don't live there. You know, I, I don't, I don't speak the language. Like, I don't know. I don't have friends over there. Like it's just, it's just completely out of out of my co- circle of competence, and I think that I need to need to stay in my circle of competence. Yeah, that's it's an interesting one because uh, that's what they call, you know, the the China premium. They said it's 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 an unpredictable premium because it's the government. Right. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I I, uh, I I want to go on move on with with this question that I've I've always asked my previous guests. 
a lot, but it's always an interesting answer that I get because it's kind of different uh, how they approach. But I want to ask, what's your you know worst investment bias? I, I, I asked uh, Andrew Sater mm-hmm. w- with this question. He said an interesting one. So what's your what's your uh, investing bias? I'm interested to hear what Andrew said. Um, but for me, <laughs> you know what? When I think about that, uh, well, I have I definitely have a few. I think that my worst bias is kind of two-sided where it's like I'm very hesitant to change this bias for a reason that I'm going to tell you after, okay? So I have these set like kind of rules and characteristics of businesses I like to buy like like we went through with those six. Now, If there is a fantastic opportunity, my existing framework and biases against those kinds of businesses may be an error of omission for me in a major way to not, to not owning a a, a great business that I just didn't give a time of day or didn't give a chance. So I was, I was kind of short sighted with my existing biases. Now I'm very hesitant to change that. Because I also think that it's important to have that investment framework and lean on some biases of the way that you, the way that you think. Um, and so that's the kind of way I'd flip it on its head. But there are some other biases that I have. I'm very biased towards um, just companies that I under, I mean, again, like <laughs> biased towards company I, under, I understand, which is also a good thing to do as well. I'm pretty biased in terms of like mm-hmm. portfolio selection to technology businesses because you know I I am building a technology company. I think that they're fascinating. Sometimes I get caught up in the the coolness factor, the fascination of of me and the business, and separating my ability to value it correctly and uh, understand the competitive dynamics of other companies coming in. I think that that's a clear bias that I may have with technology companies. Um, I don't know. I'd, I think I'd have to think on this a little bit more. I, I, I know there's more. I know there's a ton more <laughs> biases that I have. What did Andrew say? Well, he he, uh, on the top of his head, he said immediately that he has uh, this price anchoring. Mm. When he when he checks the price of a stock and he kind of you know looks back into the chart and he, he sees like he gets excited you know like oh my it's it's down 30% from its high so yeah it's a price anchoring yeah but he has an interesting uh, answer on how he overcame it it's a it's a work in progress right said. yeah and i think that a lot like va- suffering value investors like himself um <laughs> no i think that that's a pretty good answer a lot of people have price bias not only like they only buy really cheap stocks or they look at the chart and go, yeah, it's down so much. They kind of did what I did with Shopify. Like, oh, it's down like 50%, but that has no <laughs> correlation to today's intrinsic value. Like it still might be super overvalued um, or in the reverse, like, you know, you have a stock that trades at all time highs. You know, like I, I hate this term, the stock's trading at all time highs. Like how can I buy a stock that's trading at all time highs <laughs> on price? Yet the valuation may be the best that it ever has been. Uh, you know, sometimes businesses demand to trade at higher prices because the business has gotten better, right? Like the business has gotten significantly mm-hmm. fundamentally better and may warrant better prices. 
Now, every investor suffers from the bias of like overconfidence. Um, and, uh, you know, that it's, you have to, everyone does this. I think that you, you want to have confidence as an investor, but you don't want to have overconfidence. Everyone struggles with this because everyone thinks that they have some sort of grasp on what's going to happen in the future, or at least be able to predict reliably what's going to happen with some certain businesses, some certain industries over time. And you have to ask yourself, like the Howard Marks thing is like, what if I'm just completely wrong? You know, like, what, what if I'm just completely wrong in my investment thesis or my ability to project some industry becoming, you know, some, some, something that bigger than it is today? You know, what if that's completely wrong? What if my uh, heavy weighting right now into the cloud computing giants, uh, like I, I strongly believe that Azure, Amazon Web Services and Google Cloud Platform and the other long list of them are going to become the most important utilities of the next, you know, 50 plus years. I strongly believe that. What if something comes out that's just way better than cloud computing? Like, I don't know that what that exists, but what if I'm wrong? Like what, like I have to think about that, right? I have to at least think about what if I'm wrong? What will I do if I'm wrong? And, um, you know, I think that that's an important thing because if you have too much confidence and you're overconfident in your ability to predict the future, I think is a recipe for disaster because as you and I know, no one has that crystal ball that everyone's after. Yeah, no one. <laughs> and if a person says so, just run the opposite yeah, direction. Run as fast as you can, <laughs> especially if they're talking about macroeconomic predictions. Oh my God. Mm. One one dude you're boring two um no you don't know that so um, i'm gonna i'm gonna move on <laughs> <laughs> yeah so just to i want to just touch for a bit but uh, we talked before we started recording that you know the markets are ripping and i'm not sure if it's still ripping now but what are you doing at the current markets now that everything is going up or maybe this they said it's just a dead cat bounce or i don't know what's the term <laughs> but what they're doing in the current current markets same thing i've been doing for many many years now which is continue to add to <laughs> great businesses uh, you know try not to overpay and then hold on to them for a really long time i think that right now after the market you know the nasdaq fell almost 30 percent uh in the time frame of like november june that you have a little bit more margin of safety in the don't overpay category. So that's always nice. Mm -hmm. In the months of March through July, maybe April through July, I deployed about twice as much capital as I did last year in total. Because while everyone tells you you're an absolute idiot, as the market keeps falling, especially with that capital you put in in April, as it keeps following all the like, you know, bear market right through July, you look like an idiot until you mm -hmm. look like a genius, right? Like this is what happens <laughs> when you buy depressed securities. And I'm not going to say here, even just at, at that low level, or maybe it falls a lot from here. Who knows? I don't, I don't really care. Um, 
you have to be go, willing to go the other way on the on the greed and fear spectrum. You know, it's 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 so classic, right? It's like be greedy when others are fearful. The classic Warren Buffett quote. Mm-hmm. Everyone says that, and then there's a lot of fear, and they're like, "Dude, I'm not investing right now." Like, you know what I mean? Like, it is so easy to say <laughs> be greedy when others are fearful, and then not practice that whatsoever. I really try to to really zig like when people are zagging or whatever the term is. I don't know if it's the other way around. Um, I, I think that that's an important thing to do. And what I'm going to do now and what I'm going to continue to do is continue to buy great businesses, whether it's new positions or existing positions, most likely existing positions. Uh, and just more of the same, man. I'm, I'm here to do this for several, several <laughs> decades, right? Like, you have to zoom out and think about that context. Like I'm going to be doing this for decades, like many, many decades. And so if you can think about that and divest yourself from the ins and outs and the noise of financial markets, I think you'll do a lot better than, than most. Yeah, it's an, it's an expected answer actually from you. <laughs> I expect no less, but, but I, I, just, I just want to remember, I, I, I just recalled, when you and Simon talk when about in the market crash of March 2020, uh, you're the type of guy that if someone checks your pulse in the market crash, you're perfectly normal and <laughs> you're actually really excited if the market crashes. So it's just a funny uh, recollection. I, I always <laughs> say that if you gave my like brain a brain scan during the market correction or like. Mm-hmm. You know, when securities are falling 10% a day in March of 2020, uh, that was actually really fun. If you were to do like a brain scan, you'd literally sit me, like submit me to a psychiatric ward. Like this guy's a sociopath. Like how, and I just, I just have the context of that multi-decade view. Like it, it's just so irrelevant in the meat, in the short term, especially when I can actually use it to my advantage and buy great businesses at better prices you know it's like uh you know i'm just rifling off a bunch of buffer quotes here but like you know you buy stocks like you buy socks <laughs> when they're on sale yes <laughs> like it's, it's just yeah. what you try to do you, know, you do that for yeah. a long enough period of time and you amass a significant amount of wealth as long as you're consistently adding to your portfolio mm-hmm. yeah so to go off tangent a bit and just want to ask, how do you handle your own personal finance? If you asked me this question two years ago, I would have a much different answer for you. I used to work, uh, you know, high-paying engineering job, dollar cost average. You know, do the whole like thing that everyone tells you to do, which is take a portion of your paycheck and put it in your portfolio right away. You know, like make sure you have an emergency fund. Like do all like this like very basic. Check all those boxes. I was a steward of that. I was, I think I was quite good at that. And I would have carried on that path to meeting all of my financial goals. Nowadays, I eat dirt and ramen and I'm a startup founder. <laughs> so the, my podcast is, uh, is, is the way I make money these days, like cash flow wise. And then everyone at my startup makes money except for me. <laughs> That's just basically how it goes. Because, you know, when you're building a company in the early stages with a lot of potential, you've raised money from our investors, is 
everything is going towards growing it into a lot bigger business than it is today. And that's, that's the goal for, for right now. So I don't have that nice cash flow from the high paying engineering job, but it's nice to be able to build, you know, a six figure advertising business with the podcast as well, too. So that's been great for a great soft landing for me in my financials, in my, in my personal finances. And that is enough for me to enjoy the things I want to do, you know, have my golf membership and still dollar cost average, like still doing like, what am I, you asked your last question, like, what are you doing? Same thing I've always been doing, you know, adding more money into the market every single month. And so uh, I got really lucky. I mean, maybe I should give myself a little credit because it was a lot of hard work on the podcast, but there was a really nice soft landing between me leaving my job, working on the startup and our podcast turning into a wonderful business. Like I haven't even disclosed this like publicly. You're here to hear first. Uh, the podcast is an incredible business. Mm-hmm. It is such a good business. Oh wow! Um, you know, it, it, I, it supports me entirely right now, and so it, in like a oh. good way. <laughs> like it's pretty good. Like it's really good. Mm. Um, and so that was really good timing because I don't know how what I would be doing right now. I'd be like, I guess, paying myself for my company, <laughs> and it would look a lot different. Yeah, it's uh, quite surprising because I, I just don't want to, you know, over expose myself but i i did not really expect to have to see the podcast as a good business it's, it's like for me in my case it's it's a way to it's it's a it's an excuse actually to talk to people more smarter than me so <laughs> so if i don't have the podcast i cannot talk to you like this i cannot ask you questions that i ask myself every day so <laughs> it was an accidental success because i started it with the exact same intentions as you and um, once your audience is big enough, I mean, you can have a pretty successful media business. If you have a very, if you have a big bit audience, right, you can have, we can run ads on the podcast. So yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. And people don't mind ads as long as your yeah. ad reads are somewhat fun. And so you're international, so you probably don't hear our ad reads because they run mostly just in Canada because the podcast is called The Canadian Investor. So like... I'll try to be as entertaining as possible on the ad reads. And I think that I used to be really boring with them. I used to read them like a robot. And now with our new ones, it's like, <laughs> like the show is sponsored by like Manscaped, for instance, you know, like the men's like grooming company. And I will just make it completely <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and I think that that's actually more entertaining. So yeah, we run, you know, five, five big brands always running on ads on the podcast. So now I just want to ask more. Um, can you share to the listeners or in a way it's like to promote your company stratosphere but i'm also curious uh, how how you started it and how is it going now yeah sure um so i did uh, i don't know if you saw it i did on twitter share i open sourced my investor letter update for the company uh, so you, you can you can check that out it kind of just talks about like our growth like it shows our actual metrics as well like how the trend is going for for sales and like you know total users and all that stuff so i open sourced it if you want to take a look at that now in terms of like how i started it i really put together a scrappy first minimum viable product what people call an mvp 
while I was still working my job and got it to like, you know, a few thousand dollars in recurring revenue per month before I decided to work on it full time. So I recommend doing that to anyone who wants to start their own company, spend a weekend of just like, can I get my first customer this weekend? Like, can I, or like, can I take this weekend and see if I can build this business and get just one person to pay for it before you go, okay, my last day of my job is Tuesday. I'm going to start my company on Wednesday. Like that is a <laughs> recipe for disaster in my personal opinion. Maybe you get lucky, but I think that you're putting a lot of pressure and stress on yourself for no reason doing that. When there are opportunities for you to kind of build your business outside of work, and maybe you can do both of them. I think a very valuable book that I read is called The 10% Entrepreneur. Uh, it's, it, and I still am doing the 10% Entrepreneur on top of my... like entrepreneur stuff, right? Like you always are trying to push the pace a little bit. And so I started it with a very scrappy level of MVP and just saw if I could get some traction. And if I saw some traction, I'd go full time on it and find the right people, partner with the right people and and go from there. Um, and fast forward to today, you know, we have several thousand people using it almost like on a daily basis at this point. Or tens of thousands in, in, in aggregate, and uh, it's it's growing. And as every business owner will tell you, not fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> But can you share for for those of uh, my listeners that are not you know familiar with Stratosphere? I mean, what what does it offer? I mean, what what is what is it? Stratosphere is Stratosphere.io. So if that's the company name and the URL, Stratosphere.io. If you want to go check it out, it is a free. Uh, with paid options, of course, but it is a free investment research terminal for you to do all of your data gathering or finding, you know, 10 years of historical financials ratios for your stock investors. It is really, really good for people who are looking at individual companies. If you're looking for trading, uh, not useful at all. If you're looking for macro data, not useful at all. But if you want to find every single thing you want, could possibly know about an individual company, individual public company, it is a powerful research terminal right there. I like to say it's a Bloomberg for the price of Netflix. It's like the easiest way to kind of describe mm -hmm. it. And um, yeah, it's been a fun That's journey. a good uh, slogan, yeah, actually. Yeah, it's a decent slogan. I might That's get a, copyright sued for something, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, which uh, are you still having... You know, Canada and U.S. markets. Yes, it's it's and, it's uh, North American platform, markets. Yeah. Hopefully, by the end of in 2023, we'll have global coverage. I'm quite convinced. Oh wow, wow! I'm really looking forward to it because I I kind of remembered asking you before if you have also available for you know the Asia Pacific markets. <laughs> I'm kind of interested, but yeah, it's a nice uh, update. Yeah. So, so before I go to the Last question that I ask my guests every end of the show: Where can people find more of your work or places to connect with you? You can find me on a podcast I do twice a week called "The Canadian Investor." Whether you are in Canada or outside of Canada, like yourself, I think that it's both highly entertaining, well researched, and uh, yeah, I'm biased, but I think it's I highly I think recommend. It's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm. That's really good. 
Um, so that's twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. That's called The Canadian Investor. As we mentioned before, stratosphere.io is my company. You can check it out. You can engage with me on the community forums. You can send me a message there too as well. Um, that's probably the easiest way to find me. I am also on Twitter at Bredo Capital. And also you have a new uh, uh, podcast that you um, didn't mention, this real estate podcast that is a branch off from <laughs> from the Canadian investor. So it's uh, also quite good. Yeah, it's quite good. So listen to it, guys. Yeah. So again, this is a question that I like to ask my guests at the end of the show. And I actually changed the question because the previous one is kind of too broad to ask. <laughs> and this question is, I will admit that kind of stole from another podcast. Uh, I don't know if you're listening to the Investing with the Legends uh, podcast of the Columbia School and uh, also with Invest Like the Best with Patrick. So they all they all have this question that they ask uh, their guests at the end of the show. So it's kind of entertaining also. So so here's my question. Um, what, what worries you and also excites you about the future? Uh, what's that thing that keeps you awake at night? May it be a financial trend or a social one, any field? Hmm. Uh, it's a great question. So what worries me, I, I, and of course, I'm just going to go with what's like topical off my mind right now because I've been kind of yes, looking of into it. But as a podcaster, this is kind of weird and spooky because there is now AI technology that can take the hundreds and hundreds of hours that I have been on my podcast and there is an AI voice that will sound exactly like me. You can type it and tell it to do whatever you want. So the fact that my voice has that much data, like machine learning capability, in just a few hours, this AI can spin up you know, a text box where you type in anything and it would sound exactly like me. Dude, like I'm talking so like you would never yeah, really yeah. notice the difference. The odd time it does like a little bit of a weird mess up or like weird. But for the most <laughs> part, like it's, you can even get it to rap in my voice. Like you can, <laughs> like you, you can get it to like spin up some biggie and stuff. Um, this is a little spooky to me, not to mention just like, yeah, I don't know it's... how people in the future really decipher between what's real and fake with machine learning. I, I honestly, yeah. I don't know, like, um, how, how are people going to distinguish if something's real or fake uh, in, in the ability for people to actually alternate videos with, a, with machine learning and, and all, like uh, artificial intelligence? So this is kind of spooky to me, right? Like how are people going to really know and decipher what's real and what's fake moving forward? And that's already been an issue, but I think it's, this is just the beginning, especially when someone can spin up an AI today right. and use my voice and say a bunch of extremely inappropriate things. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, that's spooky. That's really spooky. Yeah. Um, and so now it spooks me also. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to sleep well that night. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, that's one thing that I, does worry me for the future a little bit. And uh, what excites you about the future? So I want to have kind of, uh, kind of a balance. What excites me uh, for the future is just the ability in today's age 
you know, there's like, there's, I'm, I'm giving you a real potential con of technology. And then the real pro is that anyone in the world today with the right motivation to learn the right skills can actually, as corny as it sounds, accomplish pretty much <laughs> anything they want to, whether it be in business or life. Their ability to travel anywhere in the world today is incredible. Your ability to start a business online, manage it from anywhere. It doesn't matter your age, your background. You don't even need a lot of capital to start these kinds of businesses. Sometimes they, you can start them completely for free in a weekend and start getting your first customers. <laughs> Let's look at this podcast example. It is, yes, it is, the, it is the morning yeah. for me. It is the late evening for you. Our ability to mm -hmm. discuss, have a real-time conversation, share it with people. People 10, 15 years ago would not have the, like, they wouldn't understand that that's, they'd be like, why? Like, they'd be like, why? One, why? Two, that's <laughs> weird. And three, like, wow, that's kind of cool. And so if you take that, like, kind of gratitude towards a, people's ability to be able to spin up businesses, interact with people around the world, and with enough drive and motivation, like really accomplish so much that was just not available. Like the, the, the barrier for entry for people to succeed in whatever they want to do today, I think is that barrier to entry has come down a lot and, and, and democratized people's ability for information, for learning and their ability to, to do what they want to do. That just wasn't possible. Like even just like a decade ago, and so that excites me a lot for the future. I think that the people really who understand that now can can build a, a pretty cool life and do it from wherever they want to do it. Yes, that's a great uh, positive note to end from the compared to this <laughs> the spooky <laughs> one of the copying voice. Yeah. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. And also I appreciate really appreciate you having again in the show. Um, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did with you. And I hope in the future I can have more of you in the podcast and can learn more from you and my listeners. So, yeah, thank you for being in the show, Brayden. Take care. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.